0: You're alone in your apartment, doing your thing. Maybe you've murdered someone, or maybe you're having sex. And suddenly you get this feeling, am I being watched? Probably. Sounds like it's time for episode 108 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses the movie from popular culture and also select like a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your Why Would a Man Leave His Apartment Three Times on a Rainy Night with a Suitcase and Come Back Three Times? host Howard Cass. Today I am happy to welcome as my returning guest, blogger and film enthusiast James Wilson who was chosen as his film, one of Alfred Hitchcock's masterpieces, Rear Window. Well, I have chosen one of Christoph Goslowski's masterpieces, a short film about love, both films about warriors and voyeurism. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the pod- podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, James, why don't you remind our audience about your
1: Blogging by Cinemalite is something that I've been doing for the last eight years. It was a offshoot of another blog that I was doing where I found myself just talking about movies. Oddly enough, found that the process of blogging and writing about movies actually cleared my head about thinking about movies so that I had more computer space in my brain to deal with other things in life. You get to such an age that at times your brain just gets too full. Downloading my thoughts on movies allowed me to purge them from my brain and get on with life. Blogging by CinemaLite is the more perfect version of what I was doing before, where I made it a little bit more visual to better make points about the film. So continue looking at new movies update thoughts on old various little series like about the careers of directors generally trying to see every movie that they had done in their career and then on sunday there's a regular feature called don't make a scene where i'll break down using screen caps a particular scene that has struck me or is emblematic of something
0: yeah that's fantastic with that let's get to your selection and that is rear window first some information about the your Window is an American thriller released in 1954. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by John Michael Hayes, adapted from the 1942 short story, It Had to be Murdered, by Cornell Walden. It stars James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, Raymond Burr, Judith Evelyn, Ross Bagdesaria, Virginia Darcy, Sarah Berner, Frank Caddy, Jessalyn Back, Rand Harper, Davis Davenport, and Irene Wind. Jeff is a professional photographer flying to his apartment after breaking his leg while taking photos of an automobile race. His girlfriend, Lisa, cares for a public relations, who wants to marry Jeff, but he feels that their lives are far too different for a long-term commitment. Meanwhile, bored, Jeff watches his various neighbors across the way and begins to suspect one of his neighbors has murdered his wife. After a bit of incredulity, both Lisa and his massage therapist, Stella, helping figure out if something has happened or not. Before talking about the film proper, we should probably talk about the idea of voyeurism in film. I can't say there are a lot of films, but what do you think is the appeal?
1: It puts us right in the same wheelhouse as the character. as every time we go to a movie theater and see a film, we are a voyeur. A party that is curious into looking into the stories of other people's lives. It's a one-on-one collaboration between the artist and the audience. We are participants. As James Stewart or any of the other voyeurs in these films is watching what they're watching, we are indeed watching them watch them. It's like a multiplication of the effect. The audience identification with the person who is peeping is that much more intense.
0: Well, I think that's perfectly true. I think it's especially true when you mentioned that voyeurism is like watching a movie, which is in some ways the theme of rear window. Cinema is voyeurism. In fact, all art is voyeurism, peering mm. into someone else's life, their own personal skill and enjoyment without thinking about the morality of it. And I think we'll probably talk more about that because Hitchcock really explores that concept. I think also we're maybe genetically or evolutionarily programmed to be warriors, to be constantly aware of our surroundings for our own safety and the continuation of the species. So we're naturally drawn to it. We're always interested. Why did you choose? It's
1: one of the most perfect Hitchcock movies out there. Everything works in this movie. Even the background characters have a complete story arc. <laughs> in yes. this movie, there aren't any dangling threads. Everything gets resolved in some way. It's absolutely amazing. Then there are depth to the story in little particular things like Grace Kelly's obsession with the wife across the way's wedding ring. Because her big deal is trying to get James Stewart to settle down into a normal married relationship. Just to use that ring, the perfect thing for her will go into the stories of the people that he's looking at, I'm sure, because there are all various aspects of emotional states about commitment and about L.B. Jeffries, that's the James Stewart's character's fears about what can go wrong in relationships. It's so multi-layered. The subtext is so overt that people may not even realize that the movie is folding in on itself and making comments about itself and the characters' lives. Nothing is wasted in this movie. It's a wonderful construction. And that it all takes place on one set is absolutely fantastic. He did something like this before in Rope. That was an experiment to try and show a movie or a stage play in one continuous shot. One can argue how successful that is or not but one of the amazing things is that it takes place in real time over a couple of hours over a penthouse apartment and you see the sky changing in the background going from daylight to dusk to night he does the same thing here there are various weather conditions and things that he takes advantage of for atmosphere it is an amazing set overlooking a courtyard With the various windows of his neighbors across the way, he is basically stuck in place. And as he's a photographer, attention is drawn to something that excites him. And that is the stories of the people in their little windows, all their little movie frame as indeed we watch him.
0: Right, we're double four years. Yes. When did you first see it?
1: Oh, I saw it on television. This is one of the few package of movies that Hitchcock actually owned, so you didn't see it very much. It wasn't something that was in regular distribution packages for television networks or the local station. Rear Window just came up one night on one of the national channels. I think this is during the 60s.
0: Well, I was like you. I first saw it on television the 1960s. And yes, this was one of five films that Hitchcock owned the rights to and had removed from circulation with the idea of they're earning money in the future for his daughter. Uh, the other films were Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much Vertigo, and The Trouble with Gary. Psycho was also part of this group, but Hitchcock went ahead and sold those. Most people were not able to see them until its release in the 1980s. So you and I had the advantage of lording it over everybody. I think, yes. oh yeah, I saw that. And I saw it twice, because all the films were shown in a rerun as well.
1: When it was re-released in the 80s, this is one of the movies that I just rushed out to see because I remembered it from television and seeing it in a theater with an audience is really something there are moments of absolute terror in this movie that audiences actually react to
0: well like you i love the film i've seen it numerous times it's one of my top five favorite hitchcock and one of his films that in many ways defines many of his themes Uh, the acting's great the sound is phenomenal the set is great and it's incredibly well written so i agree with you all there what are some of your favorite scenes
1: there is a shot, I'd say it's in the first five minutes, it starts out like a curtain riser, where the shades of the window that L.B. Jeffries is stuck in front of gradually rise as the credits go on. There is a shot that is just masterful, but as storytelling, it's pure Hitchcock and Pure Cinema. It starts with a pan to James Stewart's head and he's sweating and he's asleep, which tells you immediately that it's hot. Pans down his body. It shows you that he's in a wheelchair and one of his legs in a cast. Written on the cast is Here Lie the Broken Bones of L.B. Jeffries. Goes to his camera which is broken, pans up to a shot of a horrific accident on a racetrack. Then you see another shot of an atom bomb, what looks like a pedestrian auto accident. And then you pan over to lenses and various things. And then it goes to a framed shot of a model That is a negative and then pans down to the cluster of magazines that featured that cover shot. And that tells you everything you need to know about the character (laughs) (laughs) right there.
0: It's it's a marvelous way of telling you how he got his broken leg without telling you how he got it.
1: It's brought up incidentally in a phone call. But other than that, that's all you need to know. It also tells you that as a photographer, he's attracted to danger. He likes risky subjects, which kind of explains why he is a voyeur. Number one, he's a photographer. But number two, he wants to see what's going on with the people across the way. And then you have this glamour shot. What does he do? He frames the negative. Right. Which is nuts, but it kind of shows you his disregard for that type of photography and that sort of assignment explains away why he prefers the other over this and why he's so reluctant to settle down. It's not exciting to him.
0: It's an amazing shot
1: and very, very creative.
0: I like the scene when the soldier returns home to Miss Torso and he's this sort of nerdy guy. There's a series of scenes where the husband of the newlyweds is sitting in the window, and his wife calls him to come back to bed, and he does so thrilled. Yeah, he's getting tired of having sex all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the ending where Hitchcock does something with the villain. that he's done before, and we'll talk about later, but it has that one ending. There's one scene where Jeff and Lisa are arguing, because more Lisa is arguing, because Jeff can't get a word in edgewise. And Lisa says something to the fact, well, if you're going to be rude, then there's just no talking or something like that. And I was seeing the movie with a friend, and he laughed at that scene, but he did it in such a way that I leaned down to him and asked, what? Did that strike too close to home for you? And he just nodded. Yeah. It's just such a universally recognized scene that everybody has gone that's
1: broke down that scene for, for one of those don't make a scenes because yeah. it's just lovely. And it's also, Jimmy Stewart's kind of a jerk in it. If you'll just shut up for a minute.
0: Well, I'm going to be so rude. <laughs> <And that's laughs> well, if
1: you're weird. going to be so rude.
0: In talking about Hitchcock, this is the fourth time Buffhart has talked about one of We combined Spellbound with Memento, two films about people with amnesia who may or may not have killed someone, North by Northwest and Tell No One about people accused of killing someone and they go on the run to prove they're innocent. And you were my guest when we talked Vertigo and Mississippi Mermaid, two films Mm -hmm. about them to tell. And in fact, Hitchcock will return for the next episode when pop art will cover the bird and the naked jungle when animals attack. So in full disclosure, as I said last time, he's my favorite filmmaker. His greatness came clear when he came to the US and did Rebecca. This is where he discovered psychology and psychotherapy. And with that, he began to create characters with deeper motivations and reasons for their actions. So we've covered him before. So rather than starting out so much about Hitchcock in general, though you can give us your feelings about Hitchcock in general, let's start with how do you feel this film fits to his over? What is it about Rear Window and what makes it work?
1: There are examples in later Hitchcock where he was repeating himself in theme. But it was like the other movies that he had made were dress rehearsals. And these were the grand acts. North by Northwest, the screenwriter, Ernest Lehman, said when they were trying to hassle out The Wreck of the Mary Deer and couldn't do it because, well, number one, it's an exciting story. Layman and Hitchcock were just having trouble with it. They were contracted to do it with MGM. Hitchcock said, well, you clearly don't want to do this. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to do the ultimate Hitchcock film, right. which is North by Northwest, where the wrong man is confused for somebody else, and he is pursued and chased his life has made a living hell before he can absolve himself of something he didn't do. It is the ultimate Hitchcock film. And then there's this one where there have been so many voyeurs in Hitchcock's films before. The single point of view that he uses continuously in his movies, there's a Hitchcock formula of filmmaking, of shot sequence, where you look at the person. Who is looking? You look at what they're seeing, and then you see the reaction to what that person is reacting to. And that is his really good formula. And this is the ultimate version. It's a movie-length version of those sequences. It's like a little diamond in Hitchcock's career. It is perfect. It may not be his best film, but it's certainly the most Hitchcock film that there ever was as far as his technique subject matter there's a little bit of psychology to it characters are not just cookie cutter characters they're interesting in and of themselves and the very fact that the guy is a voyeur and that is what he is purely because it's his profession and it's what he does in his off time as well
0: i certainly agree with all that as i said i think it's perhaps one of his movies that best summarizes his Theme. And of course, what makes it work is it's a top-rate thriller. Yeah. Um, but the more times you watch it, the theme of voyeurism and how we are complicit in it becomes stronger, as you realize that it is more than simply a thriller. But that's probably one of the reasons why, and we'll talk a little about this later, it was somewhat dismissed by critics, because when you first watch it, it really is just a top-rate thriller. And it takes a while for you to realize that there's more going on than it seems First.
1: And I think it's because Hitchcock was a working director at the time, and there was no perspective. Oh, well, this is you typical you Hitchcock.
0: To make money.
1: Yeah. What was so great about Hitchcock is he could take pulp material and turn it into gold.
0: Like Billy Walder.
1: Yeah, whereas most critics at the time would pay attention to novels turned into films and think of that as high art, as opposed to the pulp material.
0: They were more interested in the prestigious films, things like Gentleman's Agreement and Wilson, movies today that we don't quite take as seriously, because we take the film noir as thrillers of the time far more seriously than the studio prestige film of the time yeah
1: and it's probably because those films are more creative because they had less resources
0: i also think also that the studios were more focused on what they thought the audience wanted and they were right these prestige films that they made Made a lot of money. But the V films, the film noirs, the other kind of films, they were tapping in to something that was going on underneath the surface that even America didn't realize there and we didn't really realize what these films were about and what they were tapping into until long after.
1: Exactly and it's probably because they had less attention from the studios. Right. They could get away with looking at darker aspects of the zeitgeist and things like that as opposed to these prestige films where they played it safe.
0: Yeah, the kind your parents want you to watch while you want to go off and watch the monster movie the gangster film and things like that who knew we would be on the right side of history with that? <laughs>
1: it, um, it, is, it is ironic that we're looking at all these bug-eyed monsters and they are actually warnings about atomic energy.
0: Yeah, they're, they're all parables from the Cold War. Roger Ebert reviewed the re- release of Her Window in October 1983. He said the film, quote, developed such a clean, uncluttered line from beginning to end that we're going through it and into it effortlessness or whatever that word is. The experience <laughs> Not so much like watching a movie as like well, like spying on your neighbors. Hitchcock traps us right from the first. And because Hitchcock makes us accomplices, to its voyeurism, we're along the ride. When an enraged man comes bursting through the door to kill Stewart, we can't detach ourselves because we look to and so we share the guilt and in a way we deserve what's coming. And this is what is masterful and Something Hitchcock does over and over again. We come to sympathize and even get on the side of the bad guy suddenly, out of nowhere. Psycho, we hope the car goes down its walk. In Frenzy, we hope he gets that pin back court. and Notorious, in the last scene, as Claude Rains is being left to his fellow Nazi, we feel sorry for him, though he tried his wife. And that happens here. In the last scene, when Thor, we actually feel sorry for him and angry at Jeff and even ourselves.
1: It is weird and it's perverse, but it is it's,
0: it's a kid to cock. <laughs> I think I, I said this the last time. For me, what he does is he tells you the audience, Feel this way. I want you to feel this way. Don't you feel this way? Feel this way. And when you say, Yes, I feel that way, he says, Now aren't you ashamed of yourself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then turtles. (laughs) John Falwell notes in Dennis Berry's book, Hitchcock and Poe, The Legacy of the Light and Terror, that Hitchcock, quote, recognized that the darkest aspect of voyeurism is our desire for awful things to happen to people, to make ourselves feel better, and to relieve ourselves of the burden of examining our own lives. And now we should probably mention Francois Truffaut, in his 1954 review of the film, Francois suggested, quote, this parable, the courtyard is the world, the reporter-photographer is the filmmaker, the binoculars stand for the camera, and it's lenses. And Truffaut is very important here, because at the time, rear Window, though a massive success, I think it earned four times its cost, was someone like Vertigo, dismissed by critics as a superior thriller and nothing. But Truffaut saw something more, in it championed it when other critics it and why. And he said, quote, your window goes beyond. Piss. It is really a cruel film. Stewart fixes his glasses on his neighbors only to catch them in moments of failure and ridiculous postures when they appear grotesque or even hate. Yeah. And that's what art is. We catch people at their worst and most grotesque.
1: Yeah. Did you ever hear the story about Joseph Cotton at the premiere with his wife? When the Raymond Burr character, Grace Kelly, is broken into his apartment. Raymond Burr is attacking her. Joseph Cotton's wife gripped his arm and said to him. Do something!
0: (laughs) 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 And you do. You you want to rise out of your chair and do something. You can't, of course. That's often a feeling we have. And sometimes we scream at the film, don't go into that room. Don't open that door. Don't do this. And they always do it. Sure. They have to. (laughs) It's because
1: we want to,
0: yeah. even because if we, we want don't want to. to.
1: We want them to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Each window Jeff looked at has its own story and sometimes genre, and you mentioned that before. Jeff is watching a lot of movies at the same time. He can't help. You know, there's melodrama, there's an artist who can't get it right, there's softcore porn with really wet, and there's Torso, the Miss Lonely Hearts. I mean, he even gets the name.
1: Yes. And then there's the childless couple with the dog. Yes. In the Hitchcock Truffaut book, they bring up that scene where the dog has been killed. Spoilers! She yells at everybody. She's crying, mourning the dog. She upbraids all of her neighbors for looking. She's yelling at us, too who would then, do this to a little dog
0: yeah well, we're supposed and to be they, neighbors we're supposed to support each other we're supposed to like each other and, and they
1: and they don't that should be stabbing jeff in the heart but of course, his curiosity is drawn towards the Raymond Berg character's window, who's the only one who is not watching. And he's smoking a cigarette in the dark.
0: That's a really great one.
1: <laughs> it's just, mm, I keep calling him Raymond Berg. I should call him Torvald.
0: It's a great name. I'm not sure why they chose Torvald. It's a great Morris name. Just Torvald. Like the screenplay is by John Michael Hayes, based on a short story by Cornell Wolverine. It was quite witty and smart. And I think you've talked about how they've just built it out. So many of the details that Dove tell us that make a world outside of the apartment and outside of the murder. It may be a little glossy to some degree, but there's a feeling of reality here of living in this apartment complex.
1: I've got the Hitchcock Truffaut book in front of me right here. Truffaut says, to my mind, Rear Window is probably your very best screenplay in all respects. The construction, the unity of inspiration, the wealth of details. And Hitchcock goes, I was feeling very creative at the time. The batteries were well charged. John Michael Hayes is a radio writer and he wrote the dialogue.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. John Michael Hayes began in radio and then moved to film, where he went back and forth between big, glossy melodramas like Torch Song and Butterfield Eight, and he got an Oscar nomination for Peace and Place, where he somehow managed to turn uh, that pulp piece of fiction into actually a movie worth watching. And then he would do more substantial films. He did four for Hitchcock, Through Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Catch the the Trouble with Hearing, and adaptations like The Matchmaker, The Child, The Children's Hour. But Cornell Woldridge is a magical name among the fans, the film noir. If Woldridge's name is connected in any way to any film noir, it is a must. Yes. It could be terrible, but it's a must. He started out as a writer for Albus Bust, Jazz. The jazz days ended, he turned to Pulp Stories, very prolific. He was the source for the movie, Mississippi Mermaid, which we talked on in connection with Vertigo. It's also known as the writer's source material for The Window. The Bride Wore Black, Night Has a Thousand Eyes, Black Angel, and many others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the original short story, which I read, but I don't remember all that much. There's no love story and no additional name. It's not revealed into the last line that the hero has been legged. So I think we really have to say Pace and Hitchcock came up with all serial yeah. cameras, And what a remarkable job.
1: Yeah, it's one of those amazing things. A lot of people say that the best movies come out of short stories because oh. you can take that kernel of an idea and pop it into an extended screenplay that you can add things to it and build on it. That's where a lot of the really great filmmakers make really good stories from these short stories where they can expand them and turn them into full-fledged bursts of imagination.
0: Right. Do you have a favorite performance?
1: Thelma Ritter.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) Thelma Ritter, National Treasure serving both as a common sense commentator but also the worst of them
0: (laughs) but she's so much more matter of fact about it gee i wonder where he cut his body up how difficult it was and what did he do with it all (laughs) they're all getting sick over her comments
1: even before she was griping to him about how sick he was that he was looking out the window that he was a Voyeur, that, you know, they send people to prison for that sort of thing. Not only the conscience, but also the worst part of people. And for his little part and what little he had to do, I always admired Raymond Burr in this movie because he's just a present.
0: Very scary at first, and then he becomes sad, pathetic little man. Yeah. And then a the killer. Guy. Yeah.
1: I've seen so many Raymond Burr movies because I just find him a fascinating actor. Fun to watch, whether he was playing a villain or a non-villain. He always seemed a little villainous and a little threatening in whatever he did.
0: Well, you're right. Emma <laughs> Ritter steals every movie she's in. And she just steals popular. it. I think Stuart and Kelly have great chemistry. Do you sort of have a favorite of the stories across the way that you like maybe more than others?
1: The one I like the least is the Miss Lonely Hearts because it seems the most like a movie. <laughs> yeah, like a bad movie. But I think my favorite, I think it's Miss Torso.
0: Just, it's very funny.
1: Of course, there is the attractiveness aspect to it. She's always fending off wolves, but who she loves and her returning soldier is Wally Cox. <laughs> yeah, sort of, yes. <laughs> Not really Wally Cox, but Wally Cox. He comes home and says, Hey,
0: what do we got to eat? Yeah.
1: It is completely opposite to what the standard would be.
0: There are three technical areas, which we should, before you move on, cinematography, set design, and sound. The cinematographer was Robert Book. He did 12 films for Hitchcock, winning an Oscar for The Catch a Thief. He's known for pre-planning. And being on the planning stages of the film sometimes building models to plan everything and he was known for being able to tailor his approach to any filmmaker However, outside of hitchcock's films aren't all that notable but through what he contributed to hitchcock he became an important contributor to the art of cinematography i think here this is one of his best i mean it's very difficult to shoot a film and make it interesting with such a restricted yeah the set design was held Carrera and Joseph McMillan-Johnson. Everything was filmed on the stage of Paramount. They removed the bottom floor and went into the basement, took six weeks to build, and had a drainage system for the rain and a lighting system to create natural looking light. The only thing is, the more you see it, you can tell that that street behind the apartment is only wide enough for one car. Out of the thirty one apartments, eight were completely furnished. And I read that Miss Torso actually lived in hers for the duration of the shooting. Get out. <laughs> yeah. But it's an amazing, it's just an amazing piece of construction. And economical as well, probably. In the end. <laughs> (laughs) When it comes to sound, Frank Waxman did brief music for the opening in closing credits, and he did the piano tune, Lisa, that the composer was working on during the film. But overall, like in The Birds, the director used primarily diegetic sound, sounds arising from life of the characters throughout the film. There are four people credited sound, The Lauren L. Ryder got the Oscar nomination. And the way the sound just floats in the air behind everything and gives you a feeling of reality.
1: And that's one aspect that nobody mentions. I was a sound designer. One of the wonderful things about this film in particular is the fact that it is constant. That had to have been a heck of a job because they were not out. They were in a set. So to give it that sense that they were in the middle of a city with the constant activity that you don't see, but you're aware of just because of the sound is really well done. And I love also the fact that the voices of the people across the way are not crystal clear, that they echo, that there is a sense of distance. There is just that sense that you can hear something a little bit, but not get the full detail. Right. It's subtle and it's wonderful.
0: Bosley Crother of the New York Times at the time called the film a, quote, tense and exciting exercise, end quote, and deemed Hitchcock as the director who, whose work has a, quote, maximum of buildup the punch, a maximum of carefully tricked deception, and incidents to divert and amuse. The also noted that, quote, Mr. Hitchcock's film is not significant. What it has to say about people and human nature is superficial and glib, but it does expose many facets of the loneliness of city life, and it tacitly demonstrates the impulse of morbid curiosity. Variety called the film, quote, one of Alfred Hitchcock's better thrillers, unquote, which, quote, combines technical and artistic skills, and a matter that makes an unusually good piece of murder mystery and entertainment. Whereas the film ranked fifth on the Cahiers de Cinema's top ten films of the year list in 1955. So, thank God for the French, as Woody Allen once said.
1: You can hear dismissive right. in all of those reviews. It's like, just a thriller. you know, just a thriller. It's an Nothing exercise.
0: <laughs> With that, here's some more information about film cost $1 million to make and made $37 million at the box office. In 1997, it was added to the United States National Film Registry in the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. It received four Oscar nominations Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography Color, and Best Sound Recording. This was the year of On the Waterfront and A Star is Born, with Grace Kelly pulling one of the biggest upsets and beating out Judy Garland for Best Actress. In the British Film Institute's 2012 sound downfall of the greatest films ever made, Her Window was ranked 53rd among critics and 48th among directors. But the love affair between war photographer Robert Capa and Ingrid Bergman is believed to be Hitchcock's inspiration for the movie's romantic aspect. special note should be made of Best Flowers. who is was one of the songwriters party guests, an older social She was known as the queen of the Hollywood extras, appearing in more than 350 feature films and numerous comedy shorts, 41-year career. She appeared in at least six Alfred Hitchcock films and 23 films nominated for Best Picture and five that won. I remember her best from All About Eve when at the very end, she tells Eve, I'm so happy for you. Sometimes she had a line. And I could be wrong with this, but I think I'm right. On TCM, I believe they said that one of the reasons she was so popular as an extra Is she bought every costume she wore in the movie, such that when she was called to be an extra, she asked when the story took place, and she'd already have a costume. (laughs) Hitchcock makes his traditional cameo appearance in the songwriter's apartment, where he's seen winding a clock at about 25 minutes in. Vinnie Bartlett, who plays Miss Dorsa, says, one of the Bowery. Yig Young was the voice of Jeff's editor. The songwriter is uh, Ross Bagdasarian, creator of the original film and recording performer, Alvin and the Chipmunk. With the death of Rand Harper, the newlywed, in 2016, all credited cast members are. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is a short film about love. However, first we are going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. And while we are doing this, take the time to like, follow, or comment on the podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Aaron. And I'm Abe. And together, we host Out, out, now, out now with, with Aaron, and, Aaron and Abe. Hey, we pulled that up. Hey. This is a weekly review show, right? We talk about movies on a weekly basis. And other things. Yeah, we have uh, commentary tracks, we, we have lots of guests. A lot of bonus episodes, a lot of game talk, a lot of sports talk. Yeah, some sports talk factors in there, along with Simpsons references for whatever reason. So give us a listen, we're everywhere podcasts are found. Yeah, they're everywhere, right? Everywhere. Out and out there on a name.
0: Coming live. Sometimes. I think it's it's in there.
1: (laughs) I think I I can edit
0: that together. Welcome back. First, some information about the film. A short film about love is a Polish romantic drama released in 1988. It is directed by Krzysztof Kieslowski and written by Kieslowski and Krzysztof Kajziowicz. It is an expanded version of episode Echolag 6, a 10-part television series in which each episode corresponds more or less to the Ten Commandments. A short film about love corresponds to Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery. It stars, and please forgive me, Rosina Nafalowska, <laughs> Olaf Lubudinko, Stefania Owinska, Piotr Makalika, Makali, Makalika, Hannah Choznaka, Arter Varsis, and Stanislaus Gali. Tomek is nineteen years old, shy, and has no experience with women, but after spying on a woman with multiple Partner who lives in an apartment across the way in his apartment complex. He falls in love with her and makes up reasons for the two to meet. When Tomek finally reveals that he is in love with her, she tries to convince him that there is no such thing as love, leading to tragic consequences. What do you think of the pairing of the two? How do they work together? And what are some of their different layers?
1: Number one, it's more focused. The relationship between The voyeur and one subject, we don't get to see too much of the other residents of the block except through his work and other incidentals. I'd say the big thing is that what starts out as curiosity turns into love, which you can't say about Rear Window. Uh, (laughs) The thing about Rear Window is his seeing his girlfriend as an active participant curious about what was going on and her working with him and her putting herself into danger is what makes him fall in love with her and make her seem essential in his life to fit into his life. This is something where he's observing, but he wants to insert himself into her life. He falls in love with her. That's where the complications come in. She sees him as the little pervert, and then her relationship with him gradually changes as she begins to understand and basically turn into him. It's a fascinating little exercise in how observation changes what is being observed. It's that old trope—I uh, forget who says it—but the act of watching something changes that thing.
0: Well, that's in physics. So I don't yes. know if it's Einstein, but it's someone like that. When you observe. All particles act, they act differently than when you aren't observing, which no one can quite explain.
1: I think it was Margaret Mead who said something along those lines in anthropology as well. This is a clear case of that. What begins as an annoyance for Magda turns into an understanding and a changing Of her basic philosophy of what life is. For her, there is no, as she explains when she's out on a date with Tomek, and the fact that they have a date is hilarious. She tells him that there is no love. There's just sex. And from his observation, that is what you tend to tend to think that is what her philosophy is. But she changes her perspective because of her own caring for Tomek and what becomes of him. It's a little diamond of an idea, which is just wonderful. I've always maintained, and I think we talked about this during Vertigo, that love is a a version of insanity. It's a wonderful little story. It's a movie I didn't want to see end because I wanted to see what else happened.
0: I think everything you're saying about it is very true. But it might be interesting to note both directors were raised Catholic. Uh, Hitchcock didn't seem to be practiced Catholic, but Koslowski was raised for Catholic and had what he termed a, quote, personal and private, unquote, relationship with God. So how do you think that might have affected the movie?
1: It's hard to say because I'm not a lapsed Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic. While you were mentioning the origins of the film and that it was Decalogue, I was trying to look up the Ten Commandments, and I was thinking, what commandment is this? And you said it was, thou shalt not commit adultery. Right. And I was thinking, well, that's wrong. It should be, (laughs) thou shalt not covet.
0: You have to take into account that Koslowski was playing a little fast and loose.
1: (laughs) And that's where you get in trouble with the Ten Commandments. You do not play fast and loose with the Ten Commandments.
0: Well, for me... So Hitchcock seems more obsessed with guilt and original sin and punishment. Well, Koslowski seems more interested in forgiveness and spiritual rebirth. I mean, what could say that what happens to Jeff in your window is punishment for the fact that he's been a voyeur all his life. So yeah. he kind of gets what he deserves. But in a short film about love, Magda, the woman, comes to realize that love actually does it and reaches out for forgiveness, spiritual truth. It sounds like this was the first time you saw the film. Yes. And what did you think?
1: I loved it. But the way I saw it, it's on the Internet Archive, but the archive streaming of it has the original language, of course, but it also has subtitles. My subtitles weren't in English. They were in Spanish. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'll just rent this and I'm going to take a look at the film first. Just to see what it's about. And I watched the whole thing in Spanish. And I haven't gone to the translation. Because the director does everything visually. I didn't need the subtitles. I didn't need the dialogue to understand what was going on. And the major themes of the film. I wasn't. Deprived of the point of the film by being told what it's about. He told the story through the picture. And that's what I loved about this movie. He's right in Hitchcock's wheelhouse. But then you think about this. This is a movie about voyeur. They damn well better tell the story with pictures. Because True. if not, you're cutting the importance of the experience. Right. And exactly. of course, it has that same yin yang, where the audience, we're the voyeurs watching the voyeur watching right. what he's seeing.
0: I don't know when I first saw it. It was during the 1990s, and everyone was ordering films to Netflix. I had uh-huh. seen a short film about killing, which had showed up in an dark house theater in Chicago the year after it came out. So after that, I really wanted the Decalogue and the expanded, a short film about love. So I've seen both the short version and the long. I find the movie to be devastating, incredibly. It's a masterpiece by I director any I can't say enough about it. I just watch it, and I'm so absorbed into it, not just by the stories and the characters, but the framing on the screen and how it looks. Do you have some favorite scenes?
1: I love the frustration in the post office where he's been leaving her notes to come to the post office because he really They're wants to see her. Yeah. And of course it doesn't, doesn't exist, so she leaves in a huff. But he keeps doing it. Because he really wants to see her. I love that cognitive dissonance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he becomes a milkman just so he can deliver. Yeah. It,
1: I love how it's just like the voyeurism is all there is. Because there can't be anything further in his mind. But he wants that experience. And he can't take it a step further by, you know, like having a conversation with her about anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's she, the
0: scene when Magda comes back, like the second time in playing, and the manager there accuses her of trying to get money that isn't hers, and that's when Tomek reveals who he is to her that he's been doing it on her.
1: It's like he's punishing her for, yeah. <laughs> for being his obsession.
0: I love the scene where Magda agrees to go on a date with Tomek, and he runs in circles with the milk cart. He's just so deliriously happy. It's um, It's delirious. Yeah. The scene where Magnus seduces him and he has premature ejaculation. And Magnus says, that's all love is. Tom Eckman's off in shame. The director, as we said, was Christoph Kostowski. How familiar are you with him? Do you have a favorite film? And what do you think of his direction here?
1: This is the first movie I've ever, the first time I've ever heard of him. So I've got a lot of catching up to do, especially as a recovering Catholic. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what else is out there. You've said you've watched this several times and that you love this film. No, is there this is
0: a, probably the third time, either the second or third time. But I've also,
1: I'm reaching for a pen. Are there any other films oh, that...
0: definitely definitely. In full disclosure, I think he's the greatest filmmaker of the 1990s. He had a short career. He died relatively young. I find this film transcendent. I. Haven't seen all of his films. Mainly, I've missed his earlier films and documentaries. But starting with Camera Buff, and including such films as Blind Chance, which has been very influential. We probably wouldn't have Run Lolo Run without Blind Chance. The Double Life of Veronique, Three Colors: Blue, White, and Red, and the I have Declan. seen him. Okay, what did you see? Blue. Double Life of Veronique. Yeah, oh, all those. My favorite movie that year. So one, oh, he's great. Yeah. He really became big with Camera bugs. It was just about a man uh, who starts making documentaries for a film club and then discovers that he really likes the movie. But Blind Chance is really interesting. It's three stories, but it's the same central character, and it's what happens when he runs for a train and makes it, when he runs for the train and doesn't make it, and he Runs for the train, and he ends up getting arrested for something he did. And you see the three different scenarios play out. So, like I said, you wouldn't have yeah. run, long run without blind chance. And it's just devastating. The end of Red, three colors, Red is just desperate. He has a remarkable eye for framing. Every scene films with careful pose, but to sort of have that down-to-earth, yellow 70s, 80s cinematography. It's not glossy, maybe even a bit raggedy, but carefully composed. There's emotion in every shot. He has one major theme, I think. It's the theme that affects me more. Is it's is that he seems to believe that we are all connected in some sort of spiritual and transcendental way. In this film, not only are these two people connected and live across from each other, all of the Decalogue place apartment buildings. Yeah. Uh, but also, for the double life of Veronique, when these two characters have this kind of spiritual connection where one affects the other one's life, then you get to the end of three colors red and it's just tough. Uh, I started crying after coming here. But in spite of the spiritual and transcendental idea that we're all connected, he described himself as, "quote, one good characteristic. I am a pessimist. I always imagine that to me the future is a black hole. And I don't really see his films that way. But <laughs> sometimes the more pessimistic a person is, the more optimistic it, is.
1: That's interesting because <laughs> I know whereof he speaks because the future is unknowable especially for a filmmaker, you're basically dealing with past. Interesting.
0: But I highly recommend by him. Like I said, I think the greatest filmmaker of uh, the late 80s and 90s, and deeply influential. The screenplay is by Koslowski and Christoph Paisiewicz. Yes, I think that's how it is. I yeah. looked it up on YouTube, and I think I got it right. It was by Zewick who had the original idea. He was a liberal warrior who supported Solidarity. He met Kozlowski while making a film on communist show trials. About three years later, he came up with this idea because he had seen an artwork from the 15th century that illustrated the Ten Commandments. Koslowski liked the philosophical challenge, but he also wanted to use it as a way to dramatize the hardships in Polish society while avo- avoiding politics, which were the main earlier film. This is sort of early in its... Uh, yeah. It was made for television. Originally, he was going to use 10 different directors unlike like so many filmmakers, he couldn't let go of the control of the film. (laughs) He said that films did not correspond exactly to the commandment, And he never used their names. But there is a major difference between the television version and the expanded version, and that is the ending. The actress playing Magna suggested the film have a fairytale ending. In the original TV episode, it ends with Tomek back at the post office recovered from his suicide. When Magna comes to see him, he says that he doesn't watch her anymore. So the film ends with Tomek losing belief in love, but the film ends with Magnus more developed concern for Tomek mirroring his earlier obsession with her. And it ends in Tomek's room after he comes home from the hospital. She looks through his telescope into her own apartment, and Kuleshovski yeah. replaced an earlier scene of Magna crying in her tension an incident which eventually led Tomek to reveal his feelings store But in this this time. When she sees it through the telescope, she is joined and comforted by Tomek. So, I guess I do like the fairy tale ending better, but the original ending does have a certain power. Very it, does,
1: it does have power, but there's something lyrical about her looking through the telescope and seeing herself and uh, how it might have been. Yeah, reliving. That memory as something different with him included in it, which he was before, but she wasn't aware of it. Right. Wow.
0: Like the other Decalogue film, it features this mysterious, angelic man in white. Arthur Varsis plays the part. You see him twice when he, he passes Tomac in the courtyard. I think once when he's coming out of the door and, and
1: Tomac is going in. He's the guy
0: with the two valises. Yeah, carrying the luggage the way of the world. He was supposed to appear in all of them but he doesn't appear in episode seven but that's because he was filmed the man at a railway station but they blew it so due to technical difficulty, it couldn't be included in that one i don't know why he wasn't in 10 so it might make sense that in the very last one he wasn't there but i always thought he represented God or some spiritual aspect of life that connects us all. But if he represents a God, it's for a God that watches, it doesn't interfere. So
1: He's a voyeur, too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's all God knows. God is a voyeur.
0: And I don't know which is worse: but he doesn't interfere or he doesn't. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite performance?
1: Magda yeah. it's full-throated, containing all aspects. Here's another interesting aspect to the story is that she starts out kind of harsh and ends up being just completely empathetic, both in our attitude towards her and her attitude uh, towards the boy. That's a good arc. And she's really good in it. But I also like, oh, gosh, what's the what's the relationship between
0: the mother of Tomek's friend? Tomek lives in the apartment of this close friend who isn't there he's away doing something but uh, the friend's mother the godmother, that's great yeah i think tomac works well because he should creep you out but there's something innocent about him definitely not norman based in psycho though you do kind of wonder at first but uh, though you think what he's doing is really creepy at the same time you do see his innocence in it all you don't think completely like, mad you know we all go no. a little mad sometimes Norman <laughs> the
1: weird thing I, maybe it says something about me. Maybe it's it's not the voyeurism that creeped me out. It was his toying with her like a, a, she right. was a mouse.
0: <laughs> yes. The music is by Sidney Price. He became internationally known after writing Songs for the Unification of Europe based on the Greek text of 1 Corinthians 13, which was used in three colors blue. He went on to score The Secret Garden and, it played, and at play in the fields of the Lord and many others. He's become a major... Film yes. In the San Francisco Chronicle, Gary Camilla wrote, quote, Koslowski has crafted a compelling portrait of love, that weed that forces its strange way through life's hardest to In this review on CinemaSight, James Lake Ewing called the film a complex and perplexing examination of a simple way. He praised the outcome it's this synthesis of emotionally powerful storytelling and cinematic overdrive that makes the short film about love such an unforgivable and unrelenting experience on every level. By the end, you've been rocked and blown away by the power of yet somehow it's with a grace. The slush doesn't bring you down with a sledgehammer blow, but by softly and slowing, sticking away until he breaks you down. The critics, James, Gerard, and gave it four out of four stars and called it nothing short of a masterpiece. And I can't agree with it. Yeah. With that, here's some more information about the film. I don't know how well it did at the box office, it cost ten thousand dollars to make. Sure, it was. It made more than ten <clears> thousand. All in all, the film was released as the Polish entry for the best foreign language film at the sixty-first Academy Awards, but was not accepted as a nominee. That was the year that Peli the Conqueror won, but it probably should have gone to Women on the Job. Nervous Breakdown at the five Common The reason Mikuszowski expanded both five and six into longer feature films: a short film about killing and a short film about love. Was a contractual obligation with producers since feature films were easier distributed outside Poland. In 1998, Requiem for My Friend, composer Preisner's first large scale work, not written for film, premiered. It was originally intended as a narrative work to be written by Krzysztof Pysiewicz and directed by Koslowski, but it became a memorial to Koslowski after the, the direct death. The lacrimosa from the spectrum appears in Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, The E Irae in the film La Grande Belisa or The Great Beauty and in the second season of the television, Crown. At the time of his death, Slowski was working with Paisley on a second trilogy, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. After his death, two of the scripts were adapted by different directors. Heaven was done by Tom Twyker in 2002 and I really liked the film, though I don't think the critics had that much to say and hell by danis tanovic in 2005 which i haven't seen i don't think and purgatory which is yet with that let's start closing out and i ask you to choose a film or two to go
1: with this is a movie i saw uh, only a couple of months ago i had never heard of it before well i'd heard of it but i would never seen it before on tv one one night and it's also based on a Cornell Woolrich story, and that is The Window.
0: Yeah, it's The Boy Who Cried Murder.
1: The Boy Who Cried Murder. Well, I'll start with Wow. This is the uh, noirist noir of them all. Most noirs are about people who who do something bad out of the circumstances of their life, but this is about a little kid. He makes up stories. it's a child of magical thinking.
0: He's the boy who cried. Murder.
1: Yes. Kid, you tell him lies and it's going to have consequences one of these days and how right they are. Because during a particularly hot summer night, he goes out onto the fire escape to sleep, you know, much like the, the couple in rear window. So he sees a flag up, uh, you know, blowing in at least part of a breeze. So he goes up the fire escape and he's looking in the window of the Neighbors who live one floor up and sees a murder. So he goes to the police. They don't believe him. And pretty soon he becomes the target of the upstairs neighbors. Right. And it is devastating. Uh, I have never seen a film so much about shame of a child and actual torture of a child than this
0: movie. (laughs) Well, I've chosen three movies. Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 *The Conversation* mm-hmm. is not about someone who is a visual, but about a surveillance expert who spies on people with bugs and microphones, who has a crisis of conscience when he thinks the target of one of his jobs may be murdered. *The Lives of Others* is a 2006 German film <sighs> taking place in 1984 East Berlin. An agent of the secret police spies on a writer and his wife, leading to tragic. Circumstance. And then from 2005, we have Caché, Vicky L. Hanecki's story about a married couple who started receiving valence tapes of their lives left at their front door. The tapes are innocent enough, but it's just really creepy, and they don't know what to do about it. So what is next? What should we be expecting from you?
1: For me, I'm blogging by CinemaLite. Oh, at some point, we might have talked about this when we were talking about Vertigo. I'm doing a index for blogging by CinemaLite just to keep track of it all. I've been uncovering all sorts of things, a lot of mistakes, a lot of things, changes in format, things I'm trying to correct, but also things that I had written many, many years ago from the other site, and I'm putting those up on this site as it is. So nothing new, but there will be a a review of A Haunting in Venice. Howard and I just participated in the uh, LambCast review of that movie, and uh, that is about it.
0: Well, first, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book more ranting and ratings of screenplay screenplay. I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with filmmaker Elizabeth Lake Thomas, where we talked two films about magic, Amy Gecklin's Clueless and George Kukar's The Model and the Marriage Broker. The next episode will be with screenwriter C. Courtney Joyner, where we will discuss two films where animals attack, Alva Hitchcock's The Birds, with the animals being, well, birds, and Byron Haskins' The Naked Jungle, about army so once again, thank you, James, for being a guest on Public.
1: My pleasure. It's always a pleasure being on this.